0: Meditations
1: with Ryan Slomack. Hello, everybody out there in podcast land. Welcome to Meditations. I'm your host, Ryan Slomack, and this is episode eight. Eight. When you look at it, kind of funny. Looks like it might be two circles might be sort of an infinity sign, but strange things can be associated with the number eight. So today is a day of strange things. We've got another Ryan on the show. Ryan, Ryan, Ryan 1.0, Ryan 2.0 fellow Ryans, whatever you want to refer to us as, there are two Ryans on this podcast. Uh, We've got myself and then Ryan Clater, who I like to think of as my doppelganger. Maybe he's my clone. He could be my spiritual soulmate. Uh, But whatever you want to call him, he is a fascinating artist, a really interesting intellect, and somebody who, uh, despite the fact that we have the same name and we have a frightening amount in common, is somebody that I look up to and I learn from on a regular basis. Ryan is a comics illustrator uh, who's done such projects as A Hunter's Tale and Coin-Op Carnival. He's got a new project coming up that he's going to tell you all about, um, a book chronicling uh, 20 years of his creations, which is pretty awesome. He's also a college professor at the University of Michigan, where he oversees their comics program. but he's a variety of things, and you're going to learn all about them shortly. As you're listening to this conversation, though, I want you to be thinking about the fact that the only reason that Ryan Clater or Ryan 2.0 and Ryan Zlomek or Ryan 1.0 are connected is because we were willing to reach out and uh, see if there was a reason for us to uh, chat and connect. And you'll hear about how that all came together. But this is probably the most serendipitous friendship that I have in my life and uh, as you're listening I hope you're able to see the the power of the Ryans um, and the way in which there are different versions of yourself all over the planet and if you're able to connect with them you'll you'll learn a heck of a lot about yourself. So with that said here's my conversation with Ryan Clater uh, so Mr. Clater thanks for joining me on this show.
0: Mr. Zlomek, it's good to be here. Is that how we should refer to one another so we don't confuse the audience? Now that well, there's two Ryans on the mic. <laughs> well, I wanted to. I wanted to try to clear that up in the beginning. So uh, yeah. what what I'm going to do
1: is I know uh, you're a frequent listener to the show, which is high praise in general. Uh, and when we were planning this interview, you made the illusion that uh, you you knew what to expect, and I want to make sure I keep you on your toes a little bit. Oh so, no. I'm gonna ask you a series of yes or no questions.
0: Oh gosh! To, to kick this, you off. haven't you haven't done this on a show before. I, I'm I'm thrown off. I know that's 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 what I was
1: hoping for, and I am hoping at the end of these yes or no questions we might know how to uh, how how to communicate with one another a little bit better and make it clearer for the audience. Are you ready? Oh my gosh,
0: I don't know now. <laughs> Here we go. Anyway, though.
1: All right. Question one is actually not yes or no. Uh what is your name?
0: My name is also Ryan. I like to refer to us as fellow Ryans. Uh, My name is Ryan Clater. Awesome. I guess that was the answer to the question, right? Yep. These are going to be just a
1: lightning round. Uh, Number two, what is the highest college degree you've received? MFA. I also have an MFA. How fascinating. I know where this
0: is going now.
1: (laughs) In graduate school, did you study the documentary form?
0: Uh, Sure, I did.
1: I also studied it for my MFA. That's fascinating. Uh, Do you work in education?
0: Yes, I do. Are you a college professor? Michigan State University.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I'm also a college professor at SUNY Oswego. Uh, Do you focus on entrepreneurship class in your classes? Uh,
0: I I do put entrepreneur components into every one of my classes that I teach.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I do as well. Do you educate (laughs) students on crowdfunding campaigns like Kickstarter?
0: Uh, Yes, and they've been 100% successful, as a matter of fact. Well, kudos to you. Do you wear jeans? Never. I also never have
1: worn jeans in my life. (laughs) Have you spent significant amounts of time working on a project about your grandfather? Uh, Why, as
0: a matter of fact, I
1: have. Interesting. I believe you worked on a project called The Hunter's Tale. I worked on one called An Invisible Idol, both about our respective late grandparents. Uh, oh, gosh, we got to talk about yours. I'm not aware of this. We'll, Very uh, cool, we'll, though. We'll cross that bridge when I finally finish it. Uh, do okay. you uh, do you like the work of Sergio Aragones?
0: Oh, he's one of my Mount Rushmore of cartoonists. Yes.
1: He is by far my favorite cartoonist. Do you drink alcohol? Not a drop. I don't drink either. Do you collect <laughs> pinball machines? Quite a few of them. Oh, that's interesting. I also collect pinball machines. Do you How have any an more af- of these? Do you have? <laughs> uh, but we're down to the we're down to the the final stretch. Do you have an affinity for the comics medium?
0: You know I do. I teach it. I make it. I live it. I breathe it. I sleep it. Uh, you.
1: That's the one where you may have me beat, but I also have an affinity for the <laughs> comics medium. Do you have an aversion to killing animals?
0: heck yes, I do,
1: as do I is your birthday <laughs> August tenth?
0: yes, but do we have to air that one?
1: <laughs> uh interesting my we we can air that one <laughs> uh, my birthday is also August tenth Ryan uh, have you and Ryan's Lomac ever been seen in the same physical location?
0: Hmm. Hmm, 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 hmm. I'm not sure that we have. <laughs>
1: I don't believe we have and then the last question, are you really Ryan's Lomac? <laughs>
0: I've wondered about this late at night. Am I Ryan's Lomek? I don't know because, you know what? I have a really big appreciation for this podcast. So with as big a fan as I am, maybe I am Ryan's Lomek. I really like what I do is maybe, that
1: who I am? <laughs> am I the and am I the Ryan Clater of Central New York? I mean, these are the, these are the things that I've been grappling with as I have been prepared this. I mean, oh how how regular was- is it? That was an incredible intro, by the way. Nice Thanks. job. <laughs> I am patting myself on the back. Uh, but but in all sincerity, I mean, I think that you know part of part of my goal with this podcast, if I can talk about me before we talk about you, is that I think it's all about, making sure that we realize that there are interesting narratives all over the place. And you and I kind of met because our our circles wound around in comics and in pinball. Uh, And ironically, we really connected because neither of us are interested in drinking alcohol. And that led to a meeting, which led to a realization that we have such a frightening amount in common. How totally. often is it that you find another Ryan who has the same birthday as you, who has a very similar profession, who has a similar <laughs> uh, sort of like life code? I'm, I'm completely baffled by that. And I think that there's, there's times where you have these connections with people and, you know, as we talk about your work, I'm inevitably going to gush over it and, and, and just pat you on the back and tell you other things that I appreciate. But like, I think there's also something to be said about finding creators that you connect with on a level that is so much deeper than the work they create. And, As I'm interviewing you today, I want you to know that I'm doing my best to keep things in check, but there's a level at which we hit just by being our own respective versions of Ryan Claytor and Ryan Slomek that is unmatched in any other interview I've ever had.
0: Totally, man. I I mean, even that meeting you were talking about that happened during pandemic times, just to paint this picture a little better for our listening audience, uh, we discovered that we like all these things that one another do. And also, we don't drink. And also, there's this amazing uh, mocktail book that was illustrated by Sergio Aragones, our favorite cartoonist. And we're like, let's make a mocktail and meet on Zoom and we'll... (laughs) you know just shoot the breeze and this turned into such a wild round of kismet between us uh it was really incredible and i'm trying to explain this to my wife afterwards and she's like no 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 all that can't happen all that can't be true are you sure this guy isn't just pulling your leg? like just saying oh yeah me too (laughs) like i think he's legit
1: I am, uh, I, I don't know, maybe some people in my past would be like, he's not real to me anymore, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure that I I am a real Ryan Zlomack, and I'm pretty sure you're a real Ryan Claytor. So I guess for the sake of the next you know, 45 minutes to an hour, however long we talk, uh, we will just let ourselves believe, no matter how much this may be a simulation, that uh, Ryan Claytor, based in Michigan, very successful artist and cartoonist, does in fact exist, and Ryan Slomack, based in central New York who has a podcast, mediocre uh, educator, mediocre artist, but passionate about a lot of things. These two people do exist and there is value to that conversation happening.
0: All right, 45 minutes of suspension of disbelief. I think I can do that. Here we go, Ryan. I appreciate it. So I uh, you
1: know, one of the things that I I, I am curious about for you because I, I hear you talk a lot about your art making uh, later on in life. Um, but I'm curious about uh, your, I'm curious about two things. One, um, how you sort of discovered your artistic path uh, when you were young, I think you were growing up in California. Um, and then number two, how you discovered your sort of entrepreneurial path. I mean, you're getting ready to have another another really interesting Kickstarter about process. And as I know you in my own telepathic way, I know you've spent a lot of time <laughs> thinking about these things. So tell me a little bit about your sort of journey as a uh, as an artist and a little bit about your journey as sort of an entrepreneur.
0: Yeah, uh, happy to. And thank you for asking. And thank you for having me on the podcast in all sincerity. I've very much enjoyed the episodes so far and look forward to many more to come. So uh, I'm really glad you're doing this, Ryan. But uh, let me answer the entrepreneurial question first and artistic path second, I guess. Um, So. Entrepreneurship, you you mentioned a currently running Kickstarter campaign that I have that's actually going on right now during the month of November 2023. And if people want to check it out, they can see it at One Bite at a Time book. .com. That's the name of the book. It's one bite at a time. Add the word book and .com and it'll get you right there. But essentially this book is a big oversized hardcover collection of 20 years of my work in comics, illustration, and design. And uh, I'm very excited about this book on a couple of different fronts. One is the content and one is the format. So just to give you a quick overview, the content is essentially my work that I mentioned, but it's a very process focused approach to an art book. It's not just pretty picture after pretty picture. Each and every image that's featured also has an entire page of contextual information and a lot of archival images that led up to the final piece that you see. So I'm, as an educator, I'm very excited about this because I like uh, helping people understand what it takes to do things. And as a person who intakes media, I'm also very interested in how people do what they do. So I'm I'm trying to put out into the world a thing that I would want to see. And then I mentioned the, the other arm of this book I'm really excited about is the format. Uh, this is a book collecting 20 years of my work, and I am throwing everything in the kitchen sink at this book in terms of Uh, production. So this is an oversized book. It's got over 250 pages in it. It has dual cloth bound cover Uh, so basically instead of paper covering the hardback it's actual cloth that is foil stamped with a couple of different covers not only on the front but spine and back cover too along with a built-in ribbon bookmark copper gilded page edges all sorts of stuff and i haven't even got to the inside yet which has all sorts of different formatting issue uh, uh specialty items like gatefold pages and vellum overlays and die cut reveals I could go on and on, but I, I know we want to get to a million other questions. So I'll, I'll stop it short there and just say that uh, that is my most recent entrepreneurial venture, which you can find at one bite at a time But rewinding way back to how the heck did I become entrepreneurial? Uh, I suppose it was sort of a combination of things like um when I was young, my family would go to the swap meet and we would buy things, uh, for less expensive than you could in a retail store. And, but not only that part of the fun of going to a swap meet was, you know, watching my dad and learning from my dad and how to, haggle, essentially. <laughs> and so we'd find an item that we'd wanted and he'd say, okay, well, if you want that, then uh, let's let's see if we can get it for a little less money. And uh, we would do our best to talk to the person and see if that could happen. And often it would. And I learned a lot about negotiation from my dad. And I think that still exists in me today because i do not simply go to a printer and say hey will you print this product for me uh i'll go to printer a and printer b and printer xyz i literally solicited quotes from over a dozen printers for this project that i'm doing right now uh because not all printers are made the same so anyway um That's probably sort of the start. And then, you know, as you get going when you're younger, um, you don't have a lot of resources uh, and you really have to kind of be scrappy about how you do things. And so uh, I was hand printing and hand folding and hand stapling all of my books from the very beginning. uh, And walking them around to comic book stores and asking retailers if they would carry them. Uh, You know, I figure I'm going into comic book stores anyway. I might as well start up a conversation. So um, I I think it's sort of a combination of a lot of different life experiences. Those are probably a couple of them. And then uh, I I think you also asked about how I became... Creative or artistic? I, I should probably stop yeah, and sort, let you talk to No, no,
1: no. You're it's, it's 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 about hearing you, other Ryan. Uh, <laughs> but I let's let's stay on this sort of entrepreneurial process oriented bent for a second, because I think it's really interesting that like, you know, you've got this new book coming out, and I'm I'm sitting next to a stack of hundreds of pages that you've illustrated and and worked, and even at your stuff that uh you know was from 2004. I mean, there's like a very there's a very determined and intentional approach to the way the book is printed, what you want. Like you didn't choose to do mass market paperbacks or or anything like that. Like every element of that is, is really intentional. So when I ask you to flash back, I guess my first question for you is like, maybe the better question is, when did you realize you were so detail-oriented and you were so process-oriented? Like I think that you as an artist, you're somebody that, I know that even when it's a day where you just have to number the pages, that you love that part of the process. And I'm curious <laughs> about when you discovered that part of yourself, that sort of process-oriented and that appreciation for process.
0: Oh, boy. Um, I i feel like I've, I've, for a long time, had an appreciation for uh, items that you can tell that a lot of attention has been paid to them. That it's not just a comic book. It's not just something that had the pages finished and then Xeroxed and put it out into the world. But even after the story is created, you're thinking about the packaging design, how it's wrapped, how, it's, how you get led into the book, how you transition out of the book. So that pacing into and out of, um, you know, all of that came to my attention as a reader and I really gravitated toward that sort of thing. And so when I finally started making comics uh, in my twenties, I uh, I really wanted to imbue my own work with that same level of attention to detail. And and uh, I I'm, I'm sure it's borderline obsessive but i try to keep that in check you know i i literally hand number every single page number in my books uh you can see some of them are even like bubble numbered and uh you know th- they're different for each book so that each book has its own uh feeling or or uh you know aesthetic that quality that separates it from others um so I think I kind of had that interest even before getting into comics. And then once I started producing my own work, wanted to make a product that I was really happy with. And then each subsequent work that I did, I tried to one up myself in some way from the last publication. And I, I can even name publications and what I was trying to do with each of them. Like if you look at autobiographical conversations, that's the collected edition of, and then one day number seven, eight, and nine has a purple cover. When I was doing those books, if you look at my work prior to that, it was not particularly um, uh, environmentally oriented. But if you start looking at autobiographical conversations, there's a lot of environments drawn in that book because that's a weird little comic book. Like how often do you go into your local shop and say, I would like a comic book that deals with autobiographical theory and how it relates to the comic book medium. Like you just don't say that. And so I had to tell the readers what this was about. So you'll see a lot of very quintessentially university environments. You know, these like I, I was going to school in California. So there were a lot of these like 1970s type architecture. And then uh like you see on the flagpoles, universities like to tout how great they are. And so you see these like vertical banners plastered to the light posts as you go around campus and all these things that are triggers to, hey, you're in a university setting in this book. And so you're going to be reading about and thinking about some some academic stuff in here so uh so that was what i was trying to do with autobio conversations and uh you know we can talk about more but again i feel like i'm i'm talking too much what do you want to know ryan
1: <laughs> no no it's all good i i'm going to completely divert this real quick and i i'm uh, i we're, we're going to take a step back one of the questions i like to ask people and i have not asked anybody on this show yet um but just in general, one of my new curiosities for people is what did you want to be when you were 12? When you were 12 and you flash back to that, like, what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up?
0: I wanted to be an artist. I don't know that I knew that I wanted to be a comic book artist, but I knew that I loved art and I did not put a lot of thought into how that would be economically feasible at 12 years old. I just knew I liked art. I liked looking at it, reading it, making it, and I wanted to be an artist. So um, I took art classes in high school and majored in art in college. And it wasn't until after undergrad that I really started getting uh, back into comics in a big way. Uh, In fact, I... Uh, did an internship at Marvel Comics in New York uh, right after I finished undergrad. And at the time, I was teaching at a local community college. And when I applied for this internship, their stipulation was that, oh, well, you have to be a student in order to get this internship. And I said, well, I am also that because I am taking a class in addition to teaching. So, you know, I was taking a figure drawing class because I wanted to improve my art skills beyond what uh, I had. And uh, so long story short, uh, I got that internship at Marvel Comics. And uh, there were two interns that summer, myself and Ang Lee's son. Uh, So Hulk was coming out at the time. And uh, so it was him and I. And just, uh, yeah, just learned a mountain. Of things about comics, about the industry, about uh, you know production standards, how to scan pages, what makes them look decent, and all of this stuff, I'm now able to uh, transfer this knowledge to my students as well. So it's uh, it's been a big, cool full circle type of journey.
1: Well, two two observations. One is that uh, one thing I didn't include in my opening questions was, did you rediscover a passion for comics in your 20s? Because I was the same way. I loved comics when I was a kid, and it was was about buying 10 for a dollar at this awesome shop in Ithaca, New York. Um, And then when I was in college, all of a sudden I like started to have that headspace to be able to absorb it. And I think there's something to be said about uh, finding a medium and it doesn't matter what the medium is. I mean, one of the things that uh, comics... Uh, has an inherent problem with and always will is that it's always believed to be a children's medium. And to be able to have that and look at it from an, an adult approach and be able to notice all these nuances that you wouldn't be able to absorb if you were 12, I think is a really interesting uh I don't know, kind of like maturation point for the way in which you, you put your way into a medium and we'll get to that in a second. The second thing I want to point <laughs> out is I just like this idea about uh, you go into the swap meets with a uh, yield Marshall and <laughs> you know, you and your dad uh, are, are bartering and then you get a chance to have an internship at Marvel comics and you barter your way in by demonstrating <laughs> that you're taking college class.
0: It's so true. It's so true, and and you know that's something that has served me pretty darn well over the course of my lifetime too. I never thought that these swap meet trips would prove so useful, but I mean, even into uh, you know self publishing my work. Like I I am a vehement self publisher, and will sing that song till my dying day. Uh, I think there's a lot to be said for self publishing versus traditional publishing, and that's a whole whole nother podcast in all likelihood. But I say that because I'm the one who is talking with printers, who is organizing my book, who is doing all of these things. And so, you know, I am not only looking around for a printer that can do what I want to do because I have very specific interests. You know, I want a particular paper stock and a particular weight, and I want it to feel like this. And, you know, not every printer can do what specialty items i'm hoping for but not only that i'm looking for printers who are going to give me a good deal as well and uh, then when i find a printer uh, i'm I'm not just accepting hey they said x amount of money i'm going back to printer a and printer b and printer c and saying hey um, printer b said they do it for x amount are you willing to beat their price No? Okay. Bye. Hey, printer C, printer B says they'll do it for X. Will you beat them? Yes. Okay. Thanks. Call you right back. Hey, printer B, printer C says they'll do it for this. Will you beat their price? Yes. Okay. Call you right back. And, you know, moving through those motions. And I think our society is so accustomed to retail these days. There is a price. That's what it is. There's no questioning it. And that is not how things work. You know, printers will give you a quote, but they also know that they have competition. And so there is incentive for them to give you a deal to um, bring you into the fold. Not only that, but after you get a great deal, you can still have a better deal because you have stuff they want which is an audience of people who might also want to print and so if you look at my crowdfunding campaigns uh most of them will have some sort of a mention of the printer that i'm using and that's you know often because i sincerely do appreciate the printer that i'm working with but also it's because i've said hey printer a uh, i've got this crowdfunding campaign i'm running i expect X number of eyes on this, I think that's reasonable because here's a crowdfunding campaign I've done in the recent past, and you can see its performance publicly. Um, would you give me an X percent discount on my printer uh, bill if I mention you in the crowdfunding campaign? And then it's there in perpetuity, and uh, you know, so they get a back, I get a little break on what I'm doing, and I can actually afford to make these Fancy books that that I want to make, and uh, you know it it really has worked out in my favor. I can't imagine going to a traditional publisher and saying, you know, let's take a hunter's tale for example. Hey, publisher, I have um, an old poem that my grandpa wrote 40 years ago, and I want to turn it into comic book form. Now, if that wasn't enough to make him running, here comes some more. I also want it to be this. Unpublishably tiny size, and it needs to be printed on this kind of paper. Uh, what do you say? Like, I'm going to get laughed out of every room. But go to that crowdfunding campaign, and you can see publicly the amount of money it raised five figure funding for that tiny little comic. Uh, so, anyway, I, I feel like I'm about to get on my self publishing rant. So, I'm going to step off my soapbox for a moment and <laughs> See if there's any follow up questions. Nah,
1: you're 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 good, Ryan. We're here to hear. I, you know, a couple of things that I want I want to just clarify for for listeners. One, um, if everybody at home is thinking the same thing I'm thinking, which is that Ryan Clater was a telemarketer in his previous life, we'll we'll delve into that and see if we can get uh, some self hypnosis going on to get those answers. Number two, um, is that I just you know I think that oftentimes, uh, when we talk about business in any form, it's a dirty word. and mm-hmm. I don't uh, I don't necessarily disagree with that statement. I mean, we're at a point in in our culture where business is is causing us a, a great deal of of problems, but that's when we think about it on this this macro scale and this visibility scale. But when we take a step back and we start to think about the fact that like, Everything is transactional, and maybe that takes the 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 magic out of things a little bit. But I would also argue that like I've met so many interesting people because I've been willing to have some sort of business type relationship or business type of question. And I want to also put a little subheading to that, which is when I, uh, you know, Ryan and I are talking about these these comics in this sort of like abstract, uh, you know, like Hunter's Tale, blah blah blah. All of these books that are put together have have remarkably low print runs and they are projects of passion. And the unfortunate thing to acknowledge is that it takes money to make sure that we can have these things happen. But there's still a way to do it in an ethical manner. I mean, one of the things that I was really excited about. So you you talked about A Hunter's Tale. Uh, you know, Sorry, I apologize. I'm actually thinking about mere drawings, but I think it was for both where uh, part of your Kickstarter was also demonstrating to people that we're we're cutting down trees to to make these books but guess what i'm also using part of the money i'm raising to donate to planting more trees to demonstrate that the publishing industry can in fact be sustainable
0: yes and that's an initiative that i'm moving forward with on this next book too for one bite at a time um that was something that i saw uh Oneshi Press. This is another small press comics publisher doing. And I reached out to them immediately and said, that is brilliant. Do you mind if I do that too? And they said, please, we hope everyone does this. And I've done it on every campaign since I saw them uh, taking that stab. And uh, I've also seen other folks start to pick up on that recently too. So uh, other folks in terms of small publishers, I hope that larger publishers will do this too, because think of the impact that we could make if as an industry, we could get on board with, hey, every pledge for this Kickstarter campaign plants a tree, or every book that we sell plants a tree, or you know, there's all kinds of different ways this could work. But essentially, this reforestation uh, organization called One Tree Planted makes it super duper easy to do the right thing you give them a dollar, they plant a tree and anybody can do it. You don't have to have a publishing partnership with them to make that happen. Uh, so uh, I would suggest taking a look at that. It's uh, extraordinarily easy uh, to do the right thing. So yeah, thank you for highlighting that that part of my recent campaigns. I appreciate it.
1: Awesome. And then I want to, um, we're spending a lot of time talking about business self-publishing and I think it's valuable. And uh, but I, I do want to try to move on to some other things. With that said, I have one sort of other, other avenue I want to go down, which is, um, you know, we talk about the idea of like business is a dirty word. We also think about the idea of self-publishing as the, the not I don't want to say the easy way out, but at this point, um, they're, not all self-publishing is created equal. And oftentimes when we hear that term self-publishing, we think about, I wrote a book I put it out on the Kindle. I put it out on the Nook. I wrote a book. People can go and do print on demand through Amazon. And I'm not belittling that work at all. I, I have a, a number of books that I've picked up that I've been remarkably impressed with. But when it comes to the idea as of your item as artwork, the thing that I do notice with these, these print on demand services is that um, me as an artist, I go through and I try to think about their printing techniques and what you, what you can do to maximize that format and I struggle to really think about what I could do with kind of blotchier colors or, um, you know, like paper stock that that looks like printing paper. And once again, I'm not belittling it. It's just that's a that's a design challenge that I haven't necessarily seen tackled. Uh, Whereas in all of your books, when you say self-publisher, it doesn't mean I created a thing. I paid a printer. They printed the book. It means I created a thing. I created a thing with an intentionality about what inks would be used, about whether there would be something that's magnetic. What does the paper look and feel like? How does somebody interacting with this book literally physically interact with it. I mean you've put things in your books where you're encouraging people to to use scissors and cut things out and build physical objects <laughs> or you're uh you know you're you're you have uh books where you have these beautiful designs and you're printing it on paper because you want to encourage people to color in them. I mean these are these are walking pieces of interactive artwork. Um how did you how did you find yourself on that pathway to becoming so obsessed with not just all right, the story is complete, but also the packaging is is part of the story.
0: Yeah, I'm I, maybe it's my ugh, God, I I feel dirty saying this, but maybe it's my my fine art background. I mean, I I went to school for a fine art degree, and when you do that, they don't just talk about technique and making a picture look like what you see in reality. We also talk about f- thinking about how the form of the object can relate to the content itself and being intentional about, you know, what type of materials you choose and that sort of thing. So, you know, maybe it was my undergraduate uh, education coming through. I also think I've had sort of an innate interest in the form of the book for a really long time. Uh, You know, even growing up and, and seeing comic books and like, you know, our, our our mutual favorite Sergio Aragones will do these elaborate frames to start out a lot of his books where, you know, typically it's just a, an indicia, you know, who prints this, what's the copyright date, uh, or even just an introduction to the book to come. And it would not have to have anything except the text, but he litters these pages with gorgeous artwork and, uh, intertextual references and foreshadowing of what's to come in these books. And I remember even as a kid poring over those and the double page spreads from grew. and, you know, I, I really relish what can be done in the form of the book. And you mentioned a few things from my past works and I'm even more excited with this current book that I've been mentioning one bite at a time uh, because this is the most complex, print publication I have ever designed in my life. Um, you know, I really want these specialty printing options to speak to the theme of the book too. So you talked about how form was related to content itself. Basically in this art book, the the overarching theme is process. Like I want people to understand what happens behind the scenes when you pull back the curtain to see what it takes to make these pieces. And you'll see on the Kickstarter page, uh, there's this example of, a piece of original artwork with a really high resolution scan. So you can see very closely what this original art looked like. And this has been done in, uh, you know, like artist editions, if if people aren't aware of that. Basically, uh, a company will make high resolution scans of original artwork and print them out in full color so that you can see all those little pencil marks and mistakes that went into it and get a better understanding for how that page was originally made before it was scanned, processed, digitally colored, et cetera. But for this book, I'm not simply printing that high-resolution scan on a page of the book. I'm printing it, but then including some die-cut elements. And in layman's terms, that's holes cut in the page so that you can see through to the next page behind it to the fully scanned, processed, colored page Of the same piece of artwork and they line up together so that you can either look at the original artwork or you can look at the final process piece or you can look at them both at the same time as you see that original artwork and the holes cut in it so you can see them line up and you see oh okay i see what this looked like originally and then at the same time elements of the final piece are there and visible as well. So uh, there's an example of how form is relating to content in this current book that's about to be published.
1: I love it. Uh, I want to give our listeners a challenge. Um, You know, I think that one of the things that we were so... I think it's kind of an inherently American thing, but when we think about uh when we think about consumption, we're always focused on like, oh, fast food, sugar, things like that. But I would argue that we have a consumptive, an addictive consumptive media uh need where it's that's why binge watching is so popular and things like that. We we very rarely give ourselves time to ease into a piece of media and then ease out of a piece of media. So uh what I want to just encourage any listener to do is Next time you're at the library, next time you're in your home, pick up any book. It doesn't matter. And just take a moment to to look at everything that has nothing to do with the main content. Look at the end <laughs> papers um, and go from there. And I'll just, you know, anecdotally, one of my favorite writers is, is Richard Matheson. And when we think about, uh, you know, paperbacks or whatever, it's usually, okay, there's a cool cover. And then we kind of move forward. And I picked up one of his short story collections and was just kind of easing my way into it. And the The page before the main content was not, you know, thanks to so-and-so or anything like that. It was a statement about why he chose a specific typeface in order to communicate those short stories. And I have never read a book in the same manner again after reading that collection. Hmm. And I think that just taking a moment to appreciate that and say, I'm going to ease my way into one thing you will look at literature you will look at comics you will look at art you will look at physical presentations of your favorite media in book form completely different every time you pick up a book um and the second thing i want to say is antithetical to that which is george carlin always prided himself on these seven words that you can't say uh you know <laughs> on on television or radio or whatever i'm totally butchering whatever that tagline was uh but here we've successfully said three dirty terms with fine arts business and self-publishing. So this is officially (laughs) the most raunchy version of uh, Meditations with Ryan Slomek that has, has ever come out. Uh, switching gears though. I want to I another thing that I appreciate about you, and i I, I always want to do this because I think that we pigeonhole people. And right now, I've pigeonholed you as like comic artist, book designer, Ryan Clater. Uh, and you are that. But I also think that you're so good about taking your artistic skills and demonstrating to other people. Sometimes it's transactional, sometimes it's companies, sometimes it's just fun, that your artistic skills can apply to other things. And uh, there's two, uh, there's two very specific ones that I want to focus on. The first is that you you've done work for Mr. Jones Watches, uh, and for anybody who who's unfamiliar with Mr. Jones Watches, it's a uh, it's a a British-based uh, watch company, and they do beautiful beautiful uh, watches that have really intricate mechanisms and always find a way to wrap. Uh, sometimes stories into the watch, sometimes uh, just abstraction, sometimes iconography that we want to we want to rethink. Um, and you designed one called Step Right Up, which sold in record time. Uh, it was a limited edition. I'm still kicking myself for not getting it. Another one called Ricochet. But can you talk about how your process changes when you're working on something like a a, a watch? You know, something like something that's physically telling us time. It has a, a very determined purpose on a daily.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, So it's actually remarkably similar to working in comics and working on the form of a book, because you've got these interactive elements, you know, in a book, you have pages and they're two dimensional and you turn them and you move them apart from one another, put them back. Whereas on watches, you also have these two dimensional elements like the glass or the hours disc or the minutes disc or the dial on the back. And all these are layered elements, much like you have layered elements in a book, too. Uh, As far as the artwork is concerned, I am creating it much the same way as I would if I were creating a comic, slightly different because they use what's called pad printing to print these watches. And... Uh, something that most people would be familiar with that is pad printed are Lego figures, right? Those little tiny figures, they have little faces on them, little clothes on them. And there's not a screen printing printer that can accurately print those small enough. But what they do have is a printer called a pad printer. And essentially it's a little squishy pad that picks up some ink and then it bloops it onto a surface that is not completely flat typically. That's how they can get it to wrap around the minifigs. So anyway, all that to say, this method of printing has a really high level of detail. And essentially, it's like screen printing. So screen printing is basically what is used to print like graphic tees. And so you'll see like several solid colors printed on a t-shirt. Well, there's several solid colors printed on watches. And I have done Posters and t shirts in the past. And so separating the colors in terms of uh, file preparation wasn't a whole lot different when working toward a watch face as it was toward working on a t shirt or a poster design. It's just on a much smaller scale. So uh, once you understand resolution and you've set up those specifications with one another, then it's off to the races. You know, you've got a 37 millimeter glass on the front of it that I can design in. Okay, what can I make happen within those thirty seven millimeters? That is also legible. <laughs> and that that's the thing too, is you need to think about uh, as an artist, well, I'm gonna, actually, as a comic book artist, most comics artists will draw their artwork large and then reduce it for print. And that's sort of a comic artist secret of how to, Tighten up your line work. Make some of those little wiggles and wobbles of your hand just sort of disappear as it gets smaller. Well, the same is true for when I was working toward a watch. I wasn't drawing at 37 millimeters. I was drawing larger and then reducing down to size. But I made many prints on you know my home printer here to see. Okay, well, what if I reduced it 50 percent? What if I reduced it 25 percent? What if I reduced it? What are all these different reductions? What do they look like? And can that level of detail still be retained? And so it was a little bit of trial and error to see that, but essentially I'm designing a glass, I'm designing an hour's disc, a minute's disc, and then a dial behind it. So basically four layers and thinking about how those interact with one another, not like a turn of a page, but a turn of a dial. How does that radial motion work? And uh, just sort of letting my mind uh, spin for a really bad pun <laughs> on on what I could make happen with that. Yeah, um, I want to stop talking again, but I do want to mention one more thing. That uh, there's also different movements associated with watches. You know, there is uh, basically a movement is the mechanism inside a watch is called a movement. And uh, there's a single axle movement where both discs move around a central uh, pin. Essentially, ricochet is a completely different movement from step right up. And I wanted to do something that was different from step right up. And so we had these multiple axes to work with on ricochet where there's essentially three different axes. The um, hours are on a different axis than the minutes. Are on a different axis from the seconds and then you've got the glass and then you've got the dial and all of those are positioned in different places within the watch uh, i tried to make it look like that hour and minutes disc were essentially you know sort of in the same place because they have to line up on that scoreboard until the time uh, but i really enjoyed trying to find a use for that seconds disc on the limited edition of Ricochet because essentially that turned into the flashing lights of the pinball machine. And here's a here's a scoop, Ryan. I don't know if I've mentioned this publicly or not, but if you were to take that watch apart and see the various uh, light and dark sections of the seconds disc, they are Morris code, which spell out the name of my wife and the name of my son. So they're in the pinball machine too. <laughs>
1: Oh, that's amazing. I think that like that idea of artist as engineer is something that is kind of underappreciated and that, you know, most of the time you go through and you you dissect the artists that you really appreciate and they are engineering every medium they're approaching. I just learned so much about watches in two minutes. That was great. Um, well, the other one I want to talk to you about too, and this is this is work that uh I hope is in your book, uh, but I think kind of goes underappreciated, which is I'm not sure I've ever met another artist who has worked so extensively in the medium of pancake making. Um, <laughs> and I wanna I wanna give our listeners a little bit of uh background. If you've listened to this show before, you know that I have an unhealthy obsession with food. Uh and Ryan uh has uh, it, it seemed like it did I don't know if it sprung out of the pandemic, but uh has has gone through and managed to to create everything in pancake form. And when I say that, I mean like he's doing beautiful illustrations in these edible, carby, delicious <laughs> items. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your your work in pancakes, where that came from, and some of the things that you've you've been most
0: proud of in making? totally yeah that was actually a direct response to the pandemic you know i'm a father and i have a young son and that was that was a really difficult time for many people in many different ways but um you know as as a young boy to be separated from so many people that was that was really rough and i really felt for him and i started trying to think of ways that i could Bring some joy to his life, and uh, I saw some folks making silly pancake creations online. So I thought I'm I'm going to give that a try, and I think the first one I did was you know it was something he was into, Mario or Sonic or something like that, and uh, and it it turned out all right, and he was super happy when he saw it. He was not expecting it. He's like, oh my gosh, how'd you do this? And so. I did it again the following week, you know, I, we were busy trying to figure out work and school during the week, but once Saturday hit, it's like, okay, we've got a little time to spare. So Saturday morning I make another fancy pancake, you know, whatever he was into. And I started posting these on social media and really was not expecting much of it. It's just like, here's some content. Here's what I'm up to these days. and it wasn't just my son who started uh, appreciating these and expecting these each week. I had a number of folks in my life who, if a pancake did not show up on Saturday morning, they would write to me specifically and say, hey, uh, when is it coming? Is everything okay? Are we gonna see these again? (laughs) And uh, I I think it was something that helped a number of people uh, find some joy and that really difficult time that we all went through, that that time of separation. So that's what it was born out of. And uh, I just kind of kept it up because, well, honestly, my family really hunkered down for a long time uh, during the pandemic. And uh, I kept wanting to give my son these uh, things to look forward to. And it got to the point where he told me, you know, I would I would make a plain pancake every once in a while. And he'd say... This just doesn't taste as good as the other ones, Daddy. <laughs> and it, it's made out of the same stuff. It's the same thing, but uh, I I I kind of spoiled him during that time because I I wanted him to have some something to look forward to. And so yes, the pancakes are going to be featured in the book. <laughs> and uh, you asked me if there's any that I was particularly proud of. Um, yeah, I I I'm really happy with how. Uh, one of the wild things came out. I did a full body where the wild things are, wild thing. Uh, I thought that came out pretty darn well. I was surprised that all the tendrils of hair held together on the flip of the pancake. Um, there was another one where somebody challenged me to do the scream uh by Edward Munch. And I I just sort of wrote it off as that's that's a silly thing that could never happen. And then I could not get that out of my mind. And I kept thinking about how I could possibly make that happen. And so now there is like a pancake framed edition of The Scream. You know, it was like the most colors I had ever used in a pancake design. And anyway, it'll be in there, too. So all of this will be in the book for you to see.
1: Well, I love the fact that uh, we just got a Maurice Sendak uh, sent out here. But I also think it's interesting, like, as you know, oftentimes people ha- have a hard time seeing those connections. And as you're if I understand your process correct, so please correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, you have a, a, a series of uh, different different squeeze bottles and you're taking little bits of pancake mix and you're mixing color into each of those. And you're doing the same color separation that you're thinking about when you're printing That's and so when true. you're doing watches. Right. And yep. then you're thinking about, all right. So, uh, you know, if I do the black layers first, when I fill in the solid colors, it'll hide that a little bit. Um, you know, that's a really interesting way to approach food where like I, prior to you doing that experiment, I had never thought about, oh, that is how a pancake cooks. And that, you know, a few seconds here or there could be the entire difference between whatever sort of Rorschach, uh, you know, experiment I have on my pancake. Whereas if you're intentional about it, it communicates something, it becomes something else. And, you know, it ties in with that packaging idea that like, the story is the complete thing. And if I'm eating if I'm eating uh, you know, a Ted Lasso pancake, it's it's tells a different story in the way it nourishes me as just eating a plain pancake that, you know, was delivered to me by, you know, somebody at a diner.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And it's it's so funny that you bring up the fact that these pancakes are yet another form of limited color design. I never uh, you know, was cognizant of that fact. I think that for a lot of my work, I just intuitively work in this limited color design. I also do full color CMYK stuff, but for many years it was limited color approach to work. And that just sort of transferred over to these pancakes. And it's, it's so funny to hear you speak that back to me because it makes so much sense. Yes, this is yet another element of, Screen printing, watch printing, pad printing, pancake printing—that <laughs> yes, it's another form of limited color printing. That's really interesting.
1: Oh, it's so great. Well, I'm glad we got to have that moment together. I want to be—I <laughs> want to be mindful of of your time, and I want to just uh, take a step back to 2004. If I understand correctly, you created Elephant Eater Comics, um, and you're rather than me explaining it what on earth is elephant eater comics and why are we eating (laughs) elephants ryan
0: (laughs) okay so uh rewinding back to 2004 we're cueing the chimes daily um i was getting real into comics in a very big way and wanted to make my own and i also knew that i wanted to self-publish um i for 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 different reasons than I am adamant about self-publishing right now. Uh, If I were honest, I would say I was interested in self-publishing because I did not think my work was good enough to get picked up by a publisher. And I still wanted to put work out into the public. So I was confident enough that I could put something out. I wasn't confident enough that my work would get picked up by any traditional publisher. And I still wanted to share what I was doing. So um, I had seen some folks who self-published and they named their companies after one thing or another. One in particular uh, is Tom Beeland who did a comic book called True Story, Swear to God, and he named his self-publishing company. Clibs boy Comics and that was a reference to his father who passed away when Tom was young but uh instilled in him an interest in drawing and artwork and so it was kind of a, an homage to his dad and uh, I thought that's that's really nice I, I I I would like to do something like that too and a saying that my dad would tell me and all my siblings I'm I'm kid number seven of seven, by the way. So lots of kids to tell. Um, He would tell us, you know, it's like eating an elephant. You just do it one bite at a time. And before you know it, you're done. And so I think about that at many points in my life when I was going through school or when I'm making the next gigantic book project or anything that requires a lot of work and can be overwhelming. I think about that saying. And so it was kind of uh, an homage to my father and a way to keep me grounded as I was taking on these larger projects. So that's the impetus behind naming my self-publishing company Elephant Eater Comics.
1: So, uh, I, you know, we've talked a lot about your sort of internal narrative and the idea that like you, you know, I spend so much time just thinking about what are the staples in this book going to be and things like that. Um, but you also, I think, have done a really interesting job uh, of of stepping out of your shell and making sure that your perspective is grounded in other people. And you have a group that you call the Elephant Eater Champions. And I'm <laughs> curious about uh, that group and how that sort of editorial board uh, big air quotes around that, uh, <laughs> you know, affects your, uh, not even just your working process, but you're also your business practices.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, so the elephant eater champions are essentially a group of super readers of mine. I have an email list that I send out to, you know, roughly 1500 people and the elephant eater champions. There's about 15 people there who responded to an email that I sent out. I said, hey, I'd really like to gather a group of folks that I could um, Mm -hmm. ask some questions to about my work, about how I'm marketing it, about what's coming out. What are your interests? What do you want to see? What would you not want to see? And in exchange, uh, you know, I, I would give you a number of things early access to projects that i'm working on uh potentially free projects potentially free artwork um at the time a hunter's tale was getting ready to launch i offered each one of them in exchange for emailing a number of people in their life i think it was you know three or five people on launch day to say hey um i know this artist I'm really excited about this new work that's coming out i think you might like it because hope you have a great day and i'm not asking to be blind carbon copied on this i'm not asking for screenshot proof i'm just gonna believe you and i said if you do this in exchange for this you can either have your choice of my back catalog of work like pick a book i'll send it to you or you can have a piece of my original artwork. Pick it. I'll send it to you. And uh, I was so taken aback when these champions of my work not only did the thing I asked, like emailed people and they, they let me know and say, oh, yeah, I emailed so many people. I hope it works out. You know, have a great campaign. I'm like, great. Uh, please tell me what you want. I, I want to send you a book or a piece of original artwork. They're like, that's cool. I've got everything you have or like, I'll get a piece of artwork, but I'm going to pay you for it. Or like, you know, I, I could not get over the fact that uh, how how generous they were. And that just really floored me. That was not something I was expecting. So we've had subsequent meetings about subsequent publications and I've asked them, you know, look, this is what happened last time. Like, how can I repay you? Like, I feel indebted. I, I want this to be a reciprocal symbiotic relationship uh i don't want this to be a one-sided ryan takes all relationship uh and it was such an interesting meeting where there was just like so much reassurance over you know i i feel strange even saying it but you, you know like uh what i what i'm putting out into the world was was meaningful to them and that was so humbling. So anyway, that's the champions and that's what they do. And that's what they get from me. Um, yeah. Did that answer your question?
1: A hundred percent. I, you know, and I'll I'll just say that I think that uh, Amanda Palmer does a Ted talk called the art of asking. And I think that just that, um, that willingness to put yourself out there and say, I think people out there like what I'm doing. And those who are, will you mind being my little like guardian perspectives? I think a lot of people are always afraid about that because they're going to end up getting answers that they don't want. Um, But the people who come forward and, you know, you got to you got to be able to gauge who who's legitimate or not. Most of the time they want to help and they want to see you succeed. They're not there to to to, you know, thrust their chest into your projects they're there to make sure that you do well the other thing i want to say is so i'm not a meat eater am
0: i am i eligible to be an elephant eater champion is that (laughs) is that
1: possible we
0: are a very friendly group we accept all walks of life regardless of you know gender, race, creed, vegetarianism, veganism, pescatarianism, anybody is welcome at the Elephant Eater Champions.
1: (laughs) I love it. And uh, I do want to encourage people to go and check out Ryan's back catalog, uh, because I think that there's it's a really just beautiful journey of uh, of an artist discovering themselves. Uh, Before I want to I want to we're going to talk about your book one more time but I do want to just make space and ask is there anything in this conversation that you that we have not tackled or, or ideas that you kind of would have put out into the universe that uh, you know are important to you or just that we haven't we haven't had a moment for yet?
0: Oh man um, I want to flip the tables here for a second and just heap some praise back on you publicly for this podcast that you're putting together. Not because I'm on it right now, because we've established the fact that I am a regular listener. <laughs> and uh, I've also done a lot of podcasting and a lot of audio work in my time. I was on the radio in college. I've done you know, a- hundreds of podcasts, literally. And uh, so in addition to podcasting, I'm also a teacher. And so I'm a little picky when it comes to presentation styles, because I've sort of been in the mix and uh, thinking about it a lot. And uh, all this to say, I have been genuinely impressed with what you are putting together with meditations, and uh, each episode feels like you've got someone so wildly different but yet you're able to connect with them and tease out these really interesting stories uh you know, from the cardboard pinball guys to the Rod Serling guy to Dave from episode three that was playing in a pinball tournament with you and decided that he was gonna do food blogging and now he's a television host about food shit. what like all of these are so interesting and every single one of them, gives me this just lovely new perspective. Like I I do not consider myself a foodie, but after listening to Dave's episode, I'm like, well, maybe I do need to see what Michelin stars are all about. Maybe I need to research eateries in my hometown and understand that on a better level. And he just made it so accessible and enticing. Uh, and and that goes for all of the folks that you've had on your podcast so far. And I think that's a big testament to you because you don't just fade into the background you're engaging, but at the same time you let the interviewee shine and that's a really rare skill, fellow Ryan. So I want to heap some praise your way and just let you know that I am looking forward to many, many more shows to come.
1: Well, Ryan two i I greatly appreciate that, and I don't take that <laughs> praise lightly. uh though I will uh, sit here and and just say to myself, don't edit that segment, don't edit that segment, <laughs> Don't edit that segment. um so let's let's uh, let's get back to your your book. Uh, and I think that we've we've spent so much time talking about the printing of it um that I I think, uh, you know, I I guess I'll just say this is uh, in the realm of endorsements, right? I mean, we'll just be blunt. Like, you're on the show, we're talking about uh, a project you're doing. I openly will endorse it. I openly will be throwing money at it. Uh, You know, as Dave so kindly said to me that he will, you know, unabashedly support me in everything that I do, I will unabashedly support both you and Dave in everything that you guys do because I I believe in you as creators. (laughs) But as I've been looking at, uh, you know, I, I, I have this. I, I'm privileged to be to see behind the scenes before it goes live uh, you know and it, it's live at this point I uh, I've really enjoyed just seeing the way in which you've managed to take all of these kind of unassuming irregular narratives of this is how I think about making neon signs this is how I think about making pancakes this is how I did a hunter's tale here's a video game that a design that none of you have ever seen before and uh, I'm going to put it in this packaging and I also think that You're also upfront about the fact that the making of the book is, and learning about the Kickstarter is part of the process of appreciating the book. Like (laughs) it just has this meta sort of level. How, how have you been sort of mulling this thing over and, and, and what do you want people to take home from, from your Kickstarter campaign? Because as we talked about, it's not about making money. It's about making sure that these passion projects can exist in the universe.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for asking that question. Uh, I, I think it's interesting because each one of these pieces has sort of its own micro narrative. You can read a paragraph or two of context and understand why this piece came about, what was it for, when was it made, that sort of thing. But then if you step back and take a look at this book as a whole, it becomes this macro narrative of a person's career in progress. And I think you could see from the start, you know, there's not always uh, fantastic pieces. Sometimes they're a little rough, especially in the beginning. And I think you can see some progression of artwork as it goes through and me trying to get uh, more comfortable with more artistic practices, and then eventually making bigger projects or working with bigger clients. and you can kind of see this broader narrative of a career happening in real time. <laughs> I mean I, I I don't want to say uh, an overarching picture of a career because mine's not done. I'm still making this story, but uh, it does give you that macro narrative. And uh I hope that people take away from this book that you don't have to be fully formed when you start. There are a number of folks that I can think of that feel like they just plopped down on the earth and they knew exactly what they were doing. One of those people is Jeff Smith, who does Bone. You know, his first comic book was just so incredibly polished, and it, it felt like uh this was just always inside him. And he always knew exactly how to do it. I never felt that way. And I think a lot of people don't feel like that. And I want folks to know who have creative interests, that that's okay. It's okay to learn. It's okay to grow. It's okay to evolve. It's okay to do different things. So that's what I hope people take away from this book.
1: I love that idea. I remember uh Harlan Ellison, the, the sci-fi writer before he passed away, he was interviewed at a convention where he, he wasn't feeling very well. Uh and the interviewers, I I am gonna I'm gonna botch it, but he said something like lines of like, you know, how you doing? Harlan's response is like, Well, I'm getting ready to finish my greatest story, which is my life. And I feel like uh, oh, wow. Yeah. And this, you know, uh it's a rough time getting old, right? So um yeah. in your elephant eater book, I mean, this is this is a 20-year narrative. Uh and I just you know, as I think about my own self, like, you know, I don't produce nearly as much stuff as you do. And I, you know, I, if I draw stuff on a napkin, I have a hard time throwing it away. Um, but like, I also think about myself as like, um, You know, just most recently I've realized that like, wow, over the last 15 years, like my narrative has been my growth as a teacher, as an, as an educator, me publishing a bunch of syllabi is not going to convey that narrative. (laughs) And I'm just so excited to be able to jump into this, you know, this periodical that this handmade, beautiful thought provoking object and be able to see this, 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 you know, to your point, this evolution, the other thing I want to do a shout out to real quick is, uh, this is self-publicized, but episode four of my podcast where I interview Jamie Santo, she talks extensively about she's been tattooing for 18 years and like looking at the first 10 years of her tattoos, she sees nothing but process. And these are pieces of art that remain on people's bodies for their entire life. And I think that there's just, I'm, I, I can't even tell you just like the pins and needles feeling I have right now hearing you talk about uh, and empowering people to realize that like, because you're creating things, and I don't care what it is, doesn't mean that you feel confident in it. It means that you feel confident that you can get the work done. It doesn't mean that by the end of it, it will be the ideal thing. And oh my God, I'm like even more jazzed about just having this book to be able to look at it from that perspective.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Ryan. That means a lot. I appreciate that.
1: Well, awesome. Well, uh, Ryan, how can people, uh, how can people follow you, uh, follow this Kickstarter and, uh, you know, hear more about Ryan 2.0 and or Ryan Clater?
0: <laughs> well, the Kickstarter can be found right now, November, 2023 at the URL one at a That's one at a That'll take you straight to the Kickstarter page where you can take a look and see if this is for you. Um, and if you would like to see all the rest of my work, it's at ElephantEater.com, like a person who eats elephants, ElephantEater.com.
1: Well, awesome. Well, uh, I want to thank our listeners for uh, absorbing the suspension of disbelief. I think that we've we've tackled <laughs> enough territory that we've discovered there. Hey, there are some more similarities between Ryan Cleater and Ryan's Lomek, but... Uh, I may not quite be the Ryan Clater of of Central New York, and you may not be quite be the, the Ryan Slomek of Michigan. But you know what? I'm happy we've got both of us on this planet.
0: But hey, for the past 45 minutes, we managed to change our voices just enough to fool everybody into thinking there are two of us. Absolutely. Well, Ryan, thanks so much for being on the show. Ryan, thank you so
1: much for having me. Was that too many Ryans in one place? Are you now fearful of people with four letters in their name? Are you hoping to find some Bryans to make up for the amount of Ryans that you just listened to? Whatever it is, I hope you find the right therapeutic mix to push through that interview and be able to go and check out Ryan Clater's work, because it's pretty magical, and I think it actually does have a therapeutic component of its own. I really want to thank Ryan for being on the show and just for being a swell human being. If you like Swell People, please check back in two weeks on November 22nd. We're going to have CJ Butler, who is a social media manager and the marketing communication manager for the Salt City Market, a, a project in Syracuse, New York, with the intention of helping to build generational wealth and make a more sustainable way to develop food businesses. It's a really interesting conversation about kind of starting your career, understanding what you want to do, and uh, being able to to work for companies and organizations that share a similar belief system that you have. So once again, November 22nd with C.J. Butler. I hope you turn in. If you like what you hear, please uh, follow me on social media. Please rate and review. You can find The World of Ryan's Lomac on Facebook and Instagram. You can rate, review, share these things on any of your favorite podcasting platforms or social media platforms. You can also email me, meditations at ryanslomack.com, if you're interested in being a sponsor. You just have any general questions or there's any ideas you want to throw out there. As always, thanks so much for listening, and please make space for conversation because you might learn something.